Well, good morning, everybody. I uh, I needed that. So, well, it's great to have everyone here today. My name is Tim Cavanaugh. I'm on the pastoral team, although I'm not wearing a plaid shirt. Uh, that's an inside joke, if you don't know it, uh, and. Uh, it's a bad joke. It's not that funny because, and no pun intended, it's a well-worn joke. So, uh, anyway, uh, we'll, uh, we'll forge forward here. You know, I have really enjoyed this uh, chapter, uh, this book study of Mark. I just love uh, hearing Rich, Jeff, Brad, as they share insights from the chapters through Mark as we've gone, gone on through this book. Uh, we're up to chapter 14. And I will say I was a, a little disappointed a couple weeks ago when I realized I got chapter 14. Because <laughs> it's the longest of all the chapters in Mark. In fact, it's double the length uh, I, of many of the chapters. And so I thought maybe we should just have one big service again uh, and just, you know, cut me some slack and let me just give one big message. But uh, I thought instead I'll just do two big messages and uh, we'll be good. But uh, in any case... Um, much of Mark we won't be talking about today because we really already did. You know, we've already touched on, back at Easter time, Judas's betrayal. Uh, we talked about, in a sense, the Lord's Supper here, Peter's pledge, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trial, Peter's denial. All of those events are in Mark chapter 14. And so, since we're just coming off of the Easter season, the Passion of the Christ, I didn't think we'll go there this time, but I do want to focus, and I'm excited to focus, really on the first nine verses of this book, of this chapter, chapter 14 of Mark. And I think you'll be excited too, and I'll, uh, I really uh, enjoyed thinking about these nine verses the last several weeks. Well, what do you say, I'd like to commit our time in prayer and we'll uh, get started. Lord, we do commit this time to you. We uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together. What a joy to come to be with uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do pray that you just bless our time together here this morning. Guide us and lead us into your word. Help us, Lord, to apply your truth to our lives. Uh, and we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm really looking forward to uh, next weekend. Uh, nothing against this weekend, but uh, of course next weekend is Memorial Day weekend. And, uh, you know, we have three-day breaks, an extra day there. That's kind of nice. It's one of our national holidays. And, um, you know, we might go to Iowa. We're not sure. We kind of thought we might try to head home on this one, uh, visit my mom who's still there. And when you travel across Iowa this time of year, it's just beautiful. Uh, it lives up to its name, which means beautiful land, Iowa. And you'll be surprised at how many cemeteries there are in Iowa at this time that weekend because they all lined up with uh, American flags. Every 10 yards, every cemetery across Iowa will have all these flags. You know, the American flag is really a beautiful flag, and it surrounds all these cemeteries. And every grave has uh, decked out with flowers. And when I go home, I'll uh, help Mom. We'll uh, open up the trunk of her car, and it'll just be filled with flowers. And we always visit three cemeteries. I mean, it's a really great time uh, going home for this event. And uh, one of the cemeteries is, uh, is in Reinerd, which is where Mom uh, grew up uh, most of her childhood. 
And her mother's buried there. My mom even has her stone already in place there with her name and her four kids' names on there. And it is sobering to see your name on a tombstone in a cemetery. You know, it is kind of scary at times. But, uh, you know, that aside, beside the point, it is a wonderful, wonderful holiday. And uh, then we go to the Catholic Cemetery in Lorville. And, uh, of course, we put flowers out on uh, my dad's side of the family's graves. And, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, that's always a great time because the veterans, Lorville's a little bit bigger. Reiner's only 100, Lorville's 300. So we have a Veterans of Foreign Wars uh, organization in Lorville. They get out there with the rifles and they shoot. Uh, shoot off the rifles and have a big celebration. You run into people you haven't seen for years as they come out to the cemetery, you know, to celebrate. And uh, so that's one thing we do. We look forward to that. And then, of course, we did have a few Protestant friends. Not a lot, but a few. And uh, we'd go over to the Protestant cemetery for for decorating of their graves. Uh, you know, I don't know where I stand in this. You know, we actually have seven plots family plots that are free for the taking there in the Catholic cemetery. I just don't know if I qualify anymore. I'm not sure. Uh, if we're hard up though, Julie, keep it in mind. Uh, we might get in there. I don't know. So, in any case, that's what we're looking forward to. And every country has its own holidays, right? We all have our set of national holidays. And, of course, Mexico, they don't really celebrate 4th of July. Uh, here in the United States, well, I guess we do celebrate Cinco de Mayo, or at least many of us do, but we all have our own celebrations. And, you know, it was no different in Israel. Israel has its own national holidays. And the backdrop to Mark 14 is really uh, at a celebration of one of the national holidays Israel was, was actually observing at the time of Jesus' life. And that was the celebration of Passover and the celebration of unleavened bread. And here in Leviticus, and I'll see if I can advance this. I'm not sure if it's working right there. Yeah, the right little arrow there. Maybe you guys may have to advance it for me. There, yeah, there we go. One more. Yes, in Leviticus, chapter 23, 5 and 6, is the instruction God gave through Moses for the establishment of this big national holiday, uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Lord's Passover, it says in Leviticus 23, begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month, which is April, our April. On the 15th of that day of the month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the next day. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. So this big national holiday, Passover, Unleavened Bread, was an eight-day event. And it happened every year. And of course, Jesus went to that celebration with his family all the years of growing up. Remember at 12 years of age, he went to this event in Jerusalem. His family would come down from Nazareth. And uh, even at that point, at 12 years of age, they left Jesus by accident as they were heading home. They assumed that he was with uh, other family members and realized several days out that he wasn't. They had to go back and get Jesus. They found him in the temple. He was there in Jerusalem celebrating this big event. Devout Jews from all over Jerusalem came to Jerusalem, or all over Israel, came to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this great national holiday. And it beckoned back to, to when Israel was being led out of Egypt as slaves. Uh, after 400 years, the night before they left, they were given instruction uh, to put blood on their doorpost. So the angel of death would pass over that house. 
uh, any door without that blood over the doorpost, uh, the firstborn would die. And it took that in order for Pharaoh to release Israel to the land that God intended to lead them to. And then there was the unleavened bread also, which they had to eat the, the, the sacri- a, a lamb, a paschal lamb. They had instruction on what kind of meal to eat that night before they left their uh, slavery in Egypt. And so that's what this great holiday commemorated. And at the time of Jesus, it had been being celebrated for 1,500 years already. And it's been being celebrated for another 2,000 years since then. And so even today, it's been being celebrated by devout Jews for now 3,500 years. And so Jesus went to uh, Jerusalem. This would be his last Passover unleavened bread festival that he would ever go to because he was now in the third year of his public ministry. And at 33 years of age, he only had a few days to live. And this year, he would be the blood. His blood would be the blood over the doorpost of people's hearts. He would be the fulfillment of this great event. And this year, he himself would be sacrificed as the lamb. And so this then now becomes really Jesus' darkest hours. The darkest hours of Jesus' life really are found in Mark chapter 14 and into 15. And it is a a very, very dark time for a lot of reasons. You know, I'd like to advance here, for example, to give you a sense of how dark it was. Let's go to this next passage here in Mark chapter 10. When they were on their way to Jerusalem for this festivity, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and he told them again. He's already done it at least once. We don't know how many times, but he told them again that he, what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. Now, my translation, instead of the word astonished, said the disciples were in dread. And the people that were following were afraid. You know, on other trips in the past, Jesus is probably having a great time. Hey, this is fun. Going down with family. I don't have to hang out with my mom and dad. I can hang out with uncles and cousins. And it's a big trip. It's probably a lot of fun. This one was different. Everyone following Jesus were afraid. And his disciples were in dread. And they were astonished. One translation uses the word amazed instead of dread, instead of astonished. Amazed that Jesus would even go to Jerusalem, knowing that the religious leaders were plotting to kill him. Jesus knew that they were wanting to kill him at this point. And so this was a very dark time for Jesus, even his disciples. And Jesus was real clear with them over and over again. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen to me when I go to Jerusalem. It didn't seem like the disciples quite understood it though. And then again in Mark 10:45, in this next frame, it says that uh, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is just dialogue as they're traveling. They hadn't quite got to Jericho when Jesus uh, said that to his disciples. But he was again quite open about the fact that his life was going to be sacrificed. Do you remember that first miracle that had occurred three years before Mark 14 when Jesus was going to the Cana to, to the wedding? 
and he was with his mother. They ran out of the wine. The mother asked if he could make some wine. It was his first miracle, really, that we know. And so, uh, remember what he said to his mother when she asked? He said to his mother, Mary, uh, Dear woman, what do I have to do with you? You know my hour has not yet come. And indeed, at that point, his hour had not yet come. But at this point, by Mark 14, his hour has come. This is his hour. And it's a dark hour, a dark of, of, uh, an hour of dread, fear, and uh, wondering what might happen when Jesus went here to the feast. I'd like to read this passage in John 11, verse 44. And again, it just gives you a sense of how dark this can really be at this time. And because I kind of wondered, well, when did the leaders first decide they wanted to kill Jesus? It didn't seem it was right at first, but at some point in those three years, they decided that they were going to kill Jesus. And as I read this passage in John 11, it answered that question because I think it was just a few weeks before this festival that Jesus was going to. Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus performed a miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And when that was reported to the chief you know, priest and the leaders and elders of the land, that's when they decided they were going to put Jesus to death. And they also decided they were going to put Lazarus to death because they had extinguished the evidence of this great miracle. And so we just read here in verse 45 of chapter 11 of John. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together to discuss the situation. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we leave him alone, the whole nation will follow him. And then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said, How can you be so stupid? Why should the whole nation be destroyed? Let this one man die for the people. Caiaphas didn't realize, but he was prophesying for God when he said that. This prophecy that Jesus should die for the entire nation came from Caiaphas in his position as high priest. He didn't think of it himself. He was inspired to say it. It was a prediction that Jesus' death would be not for Israel only, but for the gathering together of all the children of God scattered around the world. Verse 53. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. Now it goes on. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry after he raised Lazarus from the dead and um, among the people there, and he left Jerusalem. Remember, he had been called to Jerusalem because Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany, just a mile outside of Jerusalem. Jesus went there, raised him from the dead. Then he had to quit his public ministry because that's when the guys wanted to kill Jesus. And it said that he went into the country and arrived. Um, uh, he went to a place near the wilderness to the village of Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. He didn't go all the way back to Capernaum, even though he knew he'd have to return to Jerusalem for the feast in just a few days, in just a few weeks. So he just hung out there in Ephraim. And it was now almost time for the celebration of the Passover, as it says here. It was almost there. And many people from the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the cleansing ceremony before the Passover began. 
And they wanted to see Jesus. And as they talked in the temple, they asked each other, what do you think? Will he come to the Passover? They really didn't know that he would or wouldn't because, because the authorities wanted to kill him. They weren't sure if he would come this year or if he's going to bow out and lay low. He was certainly pulling back from his public ministry. Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly announced that anyone seeing Jesus must report him immediately so they could arrest him. So you can imagine why they felt dread, why they were uh, feeling fear as they marched and their journey, uh, took their journey to Jerusalem. Why they were astonished and amazed that Jesus would even make this journey and how people were even wondering if he would because of the fact that his life was on the line. This is the backdrop to Mark chapter 14 as Jesus entered into the city. This is what Jesus was facing. And here we start in chapter 14 verse 1 and it says, It was now two days before the Passover, so Jesus was a little early. And again, he would celebrate the Passover, and then he would stay in Jerusalem for another seven days. So there would be an eight-day celebration there. And so he was a couple days earlier, so at least ten days, in a, uh, planning on being there in Jerusalem for at least ten days. And the festival of the unleavened bread was, um, again, just two days away. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and put him to death. But not during the Passover, they all agreed. And uh, they said or there would be a riot. So they were going to wait till the eight days were up. And then when people started to leave in Jerusalem and go back to their homes, that's when they would capture Jesus. And that's when they would put him to death. You know what's kind of amazing right now? Is as we enter Mark chapter 14, heaven and hell are united. Heaven and hell are in agreement. Satan wants Jesus dead on the cross, and God wants Jesus executed on the cross. So actually, heaven and hell are working together for the same purposes right now, except for different reasons, different motivations. And it's again, uh, Jesus in faith is excited about, I think, and joyful about laying his life down. In one sense, not excited, but joyful. And yet, Satan is at work uh, trying to destroy Jesus' life. And we continue then in what is really one of the, the brightest spots with the backdrop of this darkness. There's an incredibly bright spot in Jesus' life. And you know, I've never really focused on these next uh, six verses in any message I've ever given in, in, in my years of, of, of teaching. And so this is the first time, and I'm really excited to teach uh, on these six verses. Uh, and I'll tell you why later on. But let's continue on here in verse 3. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany, about a mile outside of Jerusalem. He was staying with his friends, Lazarus, who he just raised from the dead a few weeks ago. And Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, they were there as well. <coughs> but he was there at the home of Simon. And we're not sure who Simon is, if, he, some, if he's a friend, a relative, but Mary and Martha were there. Uh, we know from John 12 account. We know that Lazarus was there. We know that Judas and the apostles were there. And Simon, who was once a leper, is his home. He's no longer a leper. He's been healed. And, you know, Bethany's a little town, a little village. I mean, a hundred people maybe. I don't know. And so everybody knew everybody. Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they knew Simon. They were amazed when Simon was healed from the dead or from leprosy. Amazed at Lazarus being raised from the dead. 
I mean, you, that's a lot of miracles in one little village. And here they were at Simon's home. Uh, he was having a dinner for them. And during this supper, it says that a woman came in with a beautiful jar. One account says an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And we know from John that this woman was Mary, Mary of Bethany, Martha's sister, uh, who seemed to have a very special bead of, of what was going on here. And uh, here she came in. And in those days, you know, they all laid down on their left arm at, uh, at a table. Remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ, how Jesus was going back in a flashback to Nazareth and he was building that table with legs? And his mother went up and pounded on the table. So how do you how do you lay down at this? He says, "You don't. You get chairs." She said, "What's a chair?" You know. But they would lay down at these tables on the floor, and uh, and so Jesus' legs would be off uh, behind him here. And this woman came up with this alabaster, which is a uh, I understand a granite, a very thin granite. It was white. It was luxurious. It was a very expensive jar. It might have had some sort of a neck. It might have been a vial of some sort that would restrict how much oil could come out of it uh, because this oil was so pricey. In fact, it was nard. It came from a root in India. They extracted the liquid and they would put it in this great expensive vial. And uh, this oil would be used whenever guests would come. They would give a couple drops to a guest just to put on their face, to moisten up. It's kind of like when you travel first class and they give you those heated, moist towels, you know, sometimes. I've done it once or twice. Frontier Airline doesn't do that, but whatever airline I had did. And it was just kind of a refreshing little thing to do, wipe your face off after eight hours in the airplane or whatever it was. And so it's, it's just what they would do. It was a custom in those days. They would also use that oil to... Uh, anoint a, a deceased a body. And in those days, they, you know, buried those bodies right away. You know, they do today. They, they don't uh, embalm or anything. The Muslims don't. The Jews don't. So when Lazarus died, they might have even taken this very vial and put some drops on his body and, and moistened up his body with this vial. But the, the cost of this vial was a, year, a working man's yearly wage. Today, I don't know, $25,000, $30,000. That's how much in today's dollars this oil, this ointment would cost. And so that's what this woman, Mary, brought in as they were eating. In Luke 10, 38-48, it's the same Mary that hosted a meal at her home. Now they're at Simon's home. In Luke 10, though, remember that story with Mary and Martha. Martha was upset that she was doing all the work. And Mary was just sitting there listening to Jesus. And Martha disgustedly went up to Jesus and said, Tell Mary to help. Why, don't, why can't she help with all this? And uh, Jesus said, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Mary's chosen the right thing, the best thing. We are to listen to my words. Mary was a very special person, wasn't she? I mean, she knew how to capture a moment. She knew the time. She had a sense of things that others didn't. Even the apostles, they were told Jesus was going to die. But as we read on here, we'll realize that maybe only Mary really understood that he was about to die. Because it was more than just the custom of putting oil on Jesus' body. When she put that oil on his body... Jesus, later in this passage, says it was to anoint his body for burial because she knew he was going to be killed. And she was actually anointing his body for burial as well. So we'll read on, though, and it continues here. 
with a beautiful jar of expensive perfume. You know, I want to read this little passage in Luke. And uh, it says in Luke chapter 7, it kind of gives you a sense of the custom in this. And, uh, and it's kind of an interesting uh, passage as well because it's a very similar passage. But here in Luke chapter 7, verse 43, this is what we'll read. Um, and in this passage, I'll actually start a little bit back. There is another situation where a woman came and anointed Jesus' feet with oil. And it's not the same situation. In verse 36, chapter 7 of Luke, uh, he was with Pharisees on this occasion. And one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his home for a meal. So Jesus accepted the invitation and sat down to eat. And a certain uh, immoral woman heard he was there and brought a beautiful jar filled with expensive perfume. Again, one of those jars that people would have in their homes. And then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell at his feet. She wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who was the host saw what was happening and who the woman was, a, a prostitute, he said to himself, this proves that Jesus is no prophet. If God had really sent him, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Verse 40, then Jesus spoke up and he answered his thoughts, not his words, but his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something for you. This guy's named Simon too, but he's Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper. He said, all right, teacher, go ahead. And Jesus said, here's a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one 50 pieces. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts of 500 and the debt of 50. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon said, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you know, that's right. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman. Kneeling here, when I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, which would be customary. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but she has kissed me, my feet, again and again from the first time I got here, which again would be customary. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. This was a courtesy. This is something that would be done customarily. But this Pharisee neglected that. But she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And I tell you her sins, and they are many, but they are forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little will only love little. And so that's another instance where a woman anointed Jesus with oil. But in this case, in Mark 14, Mary's doing the anointing with this very expensive nard. And she broke the seal and poured the perfume over Jesus' head. And I think she had to break it. Maybe it had a restrictive duct on there that prevented the oil from coming out. She smashed this valuable uh, vase and then poured the oil over Jesus' head and over his feet, as John says. And some of those at the table were indignant. Why was this expensive perfume wasted, they asked. She could have sold it for a small fortune and given the money to the poor. And they scolded her harshly. And John, we know it was Judah leading the, the, uh, leading the way in this. But the other apostles were siding with Judah. And you know, it sounds reasonable. It sounds reasonable, you know, where um, you were to say, hey, this could have been given to the poor. You know, that makes sense. You know, sometimes I think we Christians really have to be careful 
with what sounds religious. That's what Paul said in Galatians. You know, when some were, you know, sacrificing meals and not eating, and some were observing days, and he said, hey, it has the, the ambiance of, uh, of uh, spirituality. But in fact, it really isn't at all. And that's the case here as well. You know, this has kind of a spiritual uh, reasonableness about it where they were saying, hey, this money could have been given to the poor. Hey, that makes perfect sense. We've got to be careful, don't we, in situations like that where something may sound spiritual. But in fact, it was what Mary did in pouring this, this costly perfume that pleased the Lord the most. You know... When I thought about it, I was just trying to think, you know, how do I explain that, not using that money for the poor? Jesus replied, his, here's his explanation, verse 6, Leave her alone. Why berate her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to. But I will not be here with you much longer. She's done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. And so what she did wasn't just the customary thing of giving some oil on a person's head when they arrived to the meal. Jesus knew, and I believe it was her motivation, to anoint Jesus' body for his burial because Jesus had been telling people that that's exactly what would happen to him. Verse 9, I assure you, wherever the good news is preached throughout the the world, this woman's deed will be talked about in her memory. That's why I'm glad to be doing this message today, by the way. Because I've talked, shared the gospel for, you know, 30 years now. And i got to tell you, this is the first time I've shared this story specifically uh, on its own. And so I guess I'm fulfilling this prophecy today. In your hearing, I'm fulfilling this prophecy. Uh, that this good news is being preached through this person uh, who's one among the world of people who share the good news. We're also honoring what that woman did that day. And you know, think about it. Had that money been given to Judas, would it ever have gotten to the poor people? You know, a lot of our welfare programs, frankly, I'm not sure how much gets to the poor people either. And really, had that money even made it through Judas' uh, uh, stealth, do you think it uh, would have made a difference 10, 20, 30 years later? Would it make a difference 2,000 years later? Had that year's wage been given to poor people in those days? Jesus is saying it would not have made a difference. Then in 10 or 20 years later, you'll still have poor people with you. You're not going to obliterate poverty by giving this money, Jesus is saying here. It seems to me it's not going to make a difference. But what difference has Jesus made in the last 10, 20, 30 years after this? Or 2,000 years after this? Think of the poverty that's been eradicated through Christian benevolence over these years as those who follow Jesus and embrace Jesus and, and give of their lives sacrificially. Uh, think of what is good has come from Jesus. No, Jesus was right in saying that that money, uh, boy, what a, a beautiful, a beautiful thing was done when that, the value of that uh, perfume was poured on Jesus' head. And throwing money at human need may not resolve need for sure. And in Luke 6.38, we're also taught that, hey, when you give, you're going to receive all the more. And the only other point I thought of is that God is not a utilitarian. He's not someone who only sees value in something if it has value. God's also concerned about things of beauty, whether there's particular exchange of value, monetary value or not. We see the world in color, not just black and white. 
And if God were a utilitarian, I, uh, I fear growing old because the day will come when I won't be of much use for God. If God were a utilitarian, could only see the value of what I could do for Him. God's not. And so the point of this perfume on Jesus' head is in line with God's very character. And so, again, we see a beautiful story of a woman's faith who poured this perfume over on Jesus' head. And you know what's so, so beautiful about this story is her act of love, her act of worship. We're told that that's really who Jesus is looking for. He's looking for worshipers. He's looking for people who will give their alabaster jars to Jesus and pour those jars out on his head and just give our entire lives to Jesus. The questions I might ask are, what is your alabaster jar? Who are you giving your alabaster jar or jars to? And what prevents you from giving your alabaster jar to God? You know, many of us will say, I became a Christian at this point in time. You know, have you ever stopped to think of it this way? I became a worshiper of God at this particular point in time. God is searching for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth, according to John 4.23. The largest book in the Bible is the book of worship, the book of Psalms. The Ten Commandments begins with worship. Exodus 3.16, when Israel went into the wilderness, they used the excuse so we could go worship. You know, Cain and Abel, God had regard for one's worship, not regard for the other's worship. You know, God wants us to be Mary's. When we took care of Julie's mother, she lived with us in our home for the last four months of her life. She died there in our home. And, you know, it got to a point, it was kind of sad, but we knew she was going to be with the Lord. But uh, it is sad to see someone, you know, just steadily move toward death. But she got to a point where she just had one possession left. And that was the only thing. And she prized that little, it was a little like jewelry box. And she would walk up and down the, 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 the hallway there with that little box. And boy, I'll tell you, fear and dread on anybody who tried to take that box from her. And that was, I mean, it was her only possession left. I mean, for a while there, we let her keep the key to her house, which was a block away, uh, just so she'd feel good about the key. I mean, after a while, she didn't even have that key left. I mean, she couldn't go to her house because she couldn't even walk there on her own. But uh, she got down to just that little box. That was her alabaster jar. You know, and it's, uh, it was something she gave up eventually. You know, for me, I don't know. Sometimes... My brother and I are so different. Uh, when he left the farm, he left and didn't look back. He was so glad, and, glad to be gone, and uh, he's never looked back. And I'll be honest with you, I look back a lot. You know, I go back and I miss it. You know, and it was tough. You know, as the years have gone on, sometimes leaving a farm. Jesus promised, though, those who leave farms will inherit much more in this life and the life to come. And it's a shame on me for looking back sometimes because I, I, I turned away from that so I could follow the Lord. But in a way, that, that's an, sort of an alabaster jar for me. But, you know, why don't I just smash that alabaster jar and just pour that sacrifice over Jesus' head? Why don't I just do that wholeheartedly if that's what it takes to follow Jesus? You know, what is it that you aren't doing wholeheartedly? You're holding back. It's something you long for, need, want, that uh, prevents you from just being the worshiper God wants you to be. I'll end on this quote. Perhaps life is not a race whose only goal is being foremost, 
Perhaps enduring commitment to those we love and friendship toward our fellow citizens are preferable to restless competition and anxious self-defense. Perhaps common worship in which we express our gratitude and wonder in the face of the mystery of being itself is the most important thing of all. If so, we will have to change our lives and begin to remember what we have been happier to forget. You know, I really believe that when I read this passage and have been thinking about it over these last two weeks, I've been so refreshed and encouraged. You know, uh, just to think of, you know, I just really want to be a worshiper. I want to seize these moments. I want to seize this time. I want to see how great my God is, how sinful I am, and I just want to smash my alabaster jars. Those things that I hold near and dear to me, but I'm willing to give up for Him because, you know, He is. You know, I think Mary would have gladly given the whole world without looking back. The alabaster jar, one year of one's life, I mean, yeah, that's a lot. But because of her love and her worship of Jesus, the whole world wouldn't even measure much. And that's what we want to be like, too, as we grow in our worship for the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to guide us in that. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, we're grateful that we can come together to worship you and to be encouraged by the faith of each of our brothers and sisters here. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, imitate not the apostles in this situation, but help us see that Mary is the one that we want to be like. It's Mary that we want to pour out our alabaster jars just as she did. It's Mary's examples we want to follow. Guide us in that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.